Welcome to the Baseball Lifer podcast. This is Don Wardlow, Baseball Lifer in Residence. We've got a guest today, but before we bring him in, I want to talk about a couple of things. First and foremost, you'd think this being episode 12, I would have remembered before now to let you know how to get in touch with me if you want me to talk about something that I haven't talked about in the first 11 episodes going on 12. Baseball goes back a ways. There's been a lot of great teams that have had a lot of great seasons. There's a lot of Hall of Famers and ball players who are great players that aren't Hall of Famers. I'd be glad to talk about any that you suggest, whether it be the Whiz Kids of 1950, the Wheeze Kids of the early 80s Phillies, any of those great Yankee teams in the 90s, I can talk about those. And if you want to hear a subject of your choice, part of this great game of baseball, let me know. Contact Don, D-O-N, at thebaseballlifer.com. So that's my first name, Don, at thebaseballlifer.com. Again, before we get to our guest, baseball historian, multi-New York Times bestselling author, Eric Sherman, he'll be with us in a few minutes. Scott Rowland has been elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame. He and Fred McGriff, the crime dog, will be inducted in late July. And Scott Rowland played the early part of his career from 1996 until 2002 for the Philadelphia Phillies. And it's my guess that a good number of Philadelphia Phillies fans will make the pilgrimage up to Cooperstown, New York, to see their third baseman put into the Hall of Fame. Another Philadelphia Phillies third baseman from another era, Mike Schmidt, was inducted into Cooperstown some years ago. Scott Rowland, when I remember him as a Reading Phillies ball player, my partner and I were broadcasting for New Britain in the Eastern League. We got into Reading and we got to broadcast a few games where Scott Rowland was at third base for the Reading Phillies. Their broadcaster, Steve Degler, thought quite highly of him as did the Reading Press when we were there, to the point where when Roland was called up to the major leagues, I recorded his first major league game with the Phillies. We were just lucky enough to be in Reading when his first major league game happened, and I was able to record that game. Relations between the Phillies and Roland cooled somewhere around 2002. They wanted him gone. They sent him on to the St. Louis Cardinals, where he collected a World Series ring, I might add. Then the Cardinals shipped him to the Blue Jays, and from the Blue Jays, it was on to the Cincinnati Reds for the last three and a half seasons of his career, which ended in 2012. Before it was done, Scott Rowland had seven appearances in the All-Star game, to his credit, and eight Golden Gloves. For a third baseman, there's only a couple who have more. Brooks Robinson, Mike Schmidt, and the present Nolan Arenado. Those are three third basemen with more golden gloves than 
Scott Rowland has. So congratulations to both the crime dog, Fred McGriff, and the Phillies, Scott Rowland, for being elected into the Hall of Fame. Their induction will happen in late July. So now stand by, and in a minute, you're going to be able to hear our guest, Eric Sherman, on the Baseball Lifer podcast. Don Wardlow here, and my guest is Eric Sherman. And Eric, before I get into the many things I want to say concerning you, first of all, welcome to the Baseball Lifer. Well, thanks, Don. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Eric Sherman is a baseball historian, um, New York Times bestselling author. I, I, I read that you were a professional author as early as age 14. Can you tell me how that came about? Well, I can't say I was a professional author at 14, but I was a professional sports writer at 14. Um, I had a weekly sports column in a local newspaper in northern New Jersey. I grew up in Westwood, New Jersey, and um, it all started. um, I was playing on a middle school softball team in eighth grade that won a championship. And I had written for the school paper and that type of thing. And but I wanted this story to get more publicity. So um, I went to uh, the I cold called the editor of the local newspaper, again, based out of Westwood, New Jersey, a woman named Virginia Hunt. And I told her what I wanted to do. And and I wrote the article up and she enjoyed it so much. She said, you know, you're going to be entering high school next September. Why don't you report on Westwood High School sports for us uh, each week? And, you know, you get to pick what you want to write about. And um, and that's what I did. And um, and I, I also had a chance to write about uh, professional sports and uh, various issues that went on both politically and in the sports world. And you know how they can be intertwined as well. And it was 1980. Um, so it was when, um, we boycotted the Olympics. Um, so I wrote a story on, on that, that summer. So, uh, that's how I got my start all the way back in 1980 at age 14. When I was a broadcaster, we would ask the players who had been their idols, who had they looked up to myself. I've got mine. Bob Murphy was one as a broadcaster and Howard Cosell was another. As a writer, were there writers that you looked up to growing up? Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, I grew up in the New York area, so um, I was reading Dick Young, Phil Pepe, um, Mike Lupica, um, who actually got to meet this past summer. I played softball with him in this writer's artist softball game, so it was a thrill to meet him. But also um, investigative jur- journalists um, like uh, Bob Woodward, Carl Bernstein uh, of Watergate fame. Um, I also got to meet Carl last summer, too. He was on that softball team. So you can imagine that was a big day. Um, so those were my, you know, some some of the writers I really admired. Later on, um, I became a big fan of Roger, Roger Angel uh, Roger Kahn, um, writers like that. Um, so, um, I certainly have had my heroes and, and my inspirations, 
in in the writing field, um, both newspaper writers, magazine writers, uh, and then also authors. If you hadn't mentioned Roger Angel, I certainly was going to because that's one writer I really enjoyed. Um, one one thing that stood out was he described Juan Marichal's pitching motion as a deadly farm implement. I mean, <laughs> only how only Roger could do that. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. From high school, you chose Emerson College in Boston, Massachusetts. And how did Emerson come to be the college that you chose? Well, Emerson was one of the and and still is um, one of the top journalism schools in the country. Um, and so I went there um, to hone my writing skills. Uh, I was sports editor of both the school newspaper um, and also um, I was the sports director of the television station. Um, I did play by play with the basketball team. Um, along with Tim Neverett, who is now the broadcaster for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Um, so, um, Emerson was perfect for someone like me, you know, that always knew what he wanted to do. Um, I wanted to write, I wanted to broadcast. Um, I've had far more success on the writing end of it. Um, less on the broadcast side. I did a little bit of broadcasting out of college, but, Pretty much, I, I've been a writer um, my whole life. So um, I've, I'm working on my ninth book right now. And um, I have a couple of New York Times bestsellers. And, and my books tend to uh, focus on human interest stories, uh, stories that transcend baseball. Um, and, um, I, you know, that it's something I really enjoy and um, really digging deep into stories and uh, the human element. Uh, that's really what I go for. On the Baseball Lifer podcast, Don Wardlow here with Eric Sherman, who is the host of the Eric Sherman Show podcast, on which I got to hear you interview Howie Rose a couple of weeks back. What a great show that was. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, you know, um I've had editors at publishing companies telling me for years that I needed to have a podcast. Um, and my thinking was, well, everyone's got one, you know, then in fact, I understand there, 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 there's over 2 million podcasts in the United States. I mean, it's hard to believe, but I mean, it's, it's just so prevalent and that's kind of reason number one, why I didn't want to do it, you know? And, I wanted to save my creative energies for writing my books, but I started one up. A old friend of mine who runs a po podcast com company, uh, who founded it, um, he came to me. He says, "You got to do it. You know, like you, you know, you know all these famous baseball players and sportscasters and writers, and you know, it it would be really great if you did it." And he made it so easy for me that I decided to give it a shot. And so far, I must say, I really enjoy it. Um, and all the shows that we've done on the Eric Sherman show podcast um, have been well received and um, I'm going to keep it up. We're talking to Eric Sherman and the newest book that's going to be coming out in May is daybreak 
at Chavez Ravine, Fernando Mania, and the remaking of the L.A. Dodgers. Now, where did the title Daybreak at L.A. at Chavez Ravine come from? I think that was something, you know, that, that's a good question. Um, I know it was something I came up with, and I think my agent tweaked it a little bit. Um, my agent is Rob Wilson. He's one of the top literary agents uh, for sports books uh, in particular in the country. And and Rob isn't just an agent, but he's also uh, a friend and a confidant and um, and a, a coach. You know, he was an editor uh, for many, many, many years before becoming an agent. And so uh, we came up with that. And and I think it's a perfect title because um, there was, you know, the Mexican American community really shied away from the Dodgers for two decades. Uh, you know, the first two decades that the Dodgers were out in Los Angeles after moving out there from Brooklyn, um, because they built Do Dodger Stadium on land that had been populated by Mexican Americans, and wasn't the Dodgers fault entirely that many of them had to relocate. Um, the land was actually through through eminent domain. The city of Los Angeles wanted to use that land um, for affordable ho housing. But then when the Red Scare came around 1950, 1951, and affordable housing was deemed as being a very socialist endeavor, um, the plan was scrapped. Um, and there were still residents that remained there. Uh, so when the city sold sold the land to the Dodgers to build Dodger Stadium, um, the remaining residents on Chavez Ravine um, were forced to move. And so that really put a bad taste in the mouths of the Mexican-Americans and Latinos that were living in, in that area and really around Los Angeles. And it got national exposure. Some of them were forcibly removed. So until Fernando Valenzuela came along in late in late 1980 and really 1981 with Fernando Mania, um, the Dodgers were persona non grata to a lot of Latino, you know, to millions of Latinos. But Fernando changed all that, um, and he brought the Latinos and Mexican-Americans to Dodger Stadium in droves for the first time in 1980. And amazingly, um, that's that phenomenon still exists today. You go to Dodger Stadium and half the fans are Latinos and Mexican-Americans. And um, so he made a, a sea change in the Dodger fan base. He, he was the Mexican Sandy Koufax that they always sought after. And after 20 years, they got one. And um, so Fernando's done as much to change the Dodgers as probably any athlete other than Jackie Robinson in their history. The book that will be coming out in May is Daybreak at Chavez Ravine. Now, your very first book had to do with a member of the Dodgers, Glenn Burke. Talk to me about the book Out at Home that began your book writing career. Yeah, I've come full circle, haven't I? So Glenn, Glenn Burke um, was the first professional baseball player 
to come out of the closet as homosexual. And, and because of that, you know, it was the late seventies, he was with the Dodgers. Um, he really was, he was really blackballed from the game. Um, he, you know, the Dodgers had a very pristine image. Then the players knew that Glenn was gay and they didn't really care. Um, but that was a secret that the Dodgers wanted to keep under wraps. And they even offered him basically a bonus equivalent to his salary to marry a woman. Um, and, uh, and so Glenn wasn't going to go for that. It wouldn't have been fair, uh, to whatever woman would accept marriage of course um and it certainly wouldn't have been fair to glenn and so they ended up trading him to the oakland a's uh and billy martin was his manager and and billy martin didn't take to having a homosexual all that well um it's a family podcast so i won't get into exactly what he said (laughs) um but um Burke was basically driven from the game. And so I, I help, I collaborated with Glenn on his autobiography, which was released all the way back in 1995. And um, it's currently being made into a mini series by uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. And um, so I think you'll be hearing a lot more about that book in the coming year or two. Um, But yeah, um, he was a former Dodger as well. So um uh Dodgers are um you know has started my career in book writing and you know they've been bookends. <laughs> so but it won't be my last book, that's for sure. Glenn Burke was also the creator of the high five as we know it. He was. Um so the Dodgers had going into the last game of the season in 1977, they had three players with 30 home runs or more and dusty Baker was sitting on 29 and they would become the first team with four players with 30 plus home runs. So um, when Baker um, his 30th home run, I mean, he, you know, Glenn was very good friends with dusty. And uh, so when dusty crossed the plate, um, Glenn, Glenn Burke, he came out of the dugout and instead of the usual hand handshake, um, he went up top and he gave him a high five and it was the first recorded high five in history. Now, the first time I heard the name Eric Sherman was when I read A Pirate for Life, Steve Blass's story. And what a wonderful book that is. And Steve did a terrific job with the audio version of that book and tell me about how that came about well it had been many many years between books um i worked on that book with steve uh 2011 and and you know the book with glenn was 1995 so i had gone 16 years between books um in that space of time, I helped raise a family and, uh, I was, I was still writing, but not books. Um, so working with Steve was one of the highlights of my writing career. Um, what a, 
What a funny man. I mean, what what an enter maybe entertaining is a better word. Um, but he easily could have been a comedian, um, you know, a stand-up comedian. He's just it was just a laugh a minute with this guy. And he actually, ironically, had a very sad story. You know, he you know, of course, um Steve Blast disease, which the inexplicable a phenomenon on a pitcher unable to throw the ball straight. You know, we've seen it with Rick Ankeel and and we've seen it with um, the catcher, Mackie Sasser and, and infielder Chuck Knobloch. Well, it all stemmed back to what Steve experienced. He was an all-star pitcher and a World Series hero. And, you know, the season after he had his best season in 1972, he started having these problems with throwing the ball over the plate. And then when he would groove one, he would get hit really hard. And a year and a half later, he was out of the game altogether. Uh, I mean, he went from the very top of the baseball world to being unemployed and out of the game. And, um, but he reinvented himself as one of the great color analysts in baseball history, not just for his intelligence, his baseball intelligence, but his personality again. I mean, he was just a great listen. Um, and um, so he broadcasted for the Pirates for well over 30 years, and he just retired uh, a couple of years back. Um, but he um, he's a dear friend. He was just um, inducted into the Pirates Hall of Fame in their inaugural class. If you can believe it, they've gone all these years without a Hall of Fame. Uh, but he was just inducted this past fall. And um, so that was really, I mean, that book had it all. I mean, the feedback that I received from people was that um, it made them laugh and cry and, um, you know, just all the above. It just... Uh, it was a very emotional book and entertaining book, and um, it it sold incredibly well in the Pittsburgh area, in those four states around Pittsburgh, and um, uh, you know it it it's almost like if you write a really good book on on Pittsburgh, uh, and particularly sports, it's a great sports city. You know, everybody buys it, so it was really um, very rewarding from that aspect as well the trouble that he had even nowadays has a name it's called the yips yeah that's right and so it's it's called the yips but you also hear steve blast disease um maybe you hear it a little bit less now nowadays since it's been uh, i mean it's going to be almost 50 years since steve left the game but steve can almost count on it that his phone is going to ring, you know, when, you know, a field goal kicker misses uh, a bunch of extra points in a row or, or if, um, if a pitcher, you know, walks seven straight guys, his phone's going to ring. Um, he's somewhat the, the, the patron saint of yips. Um, and um, so you still do hear Steve last disease uh, from time to time, but um but Steve's a good sport about it. He takes all those calls and 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 answers all the questions. And he's been doing it for five decades now. He was one of the stars of the 1971 
World Series winning Pittsburgh Pirates. And that was the first year that I was a baseball fan. I was eight years old. I was just a little bit too young for the 69 Mets. So you can imagine how much I enjoyed After the Miracle, your book about the 69 Mets. Well, yeah, I think when you talk about the books that I've written, that book was the most surreal. You know, I've had some great experiences, but the experiences that I lived in that book uh, were the most surreal of not just my writing career, but my life in general. I mean, if you can imagine, uh, you know, we organized really the heart of the book, even though we interviewed all the living members of the 69 Mets. Uh, and I speak of Art Shamsky and myself. Art was my co-author. And we interviewed every living member of the 69 Mets, anybody that had anything to do with the club, you know, uh, Gil Hodge's wife. Um, we interviewed media, people that worked for the Mets, even their groundskeeper from, from that time. Uh, but the real heart of the book was we organized a trip to see Tom Seaver um, out at his vineyard in Calistoga, California. Um, and the vineyard was right outside of his home. It, it was the backyard, basically, of his home up on a hilltop in the Napa Valley. And, you know, to organize this trip to, you know, for us all to converge. And by all, I mean, Buddy Harrelson, of course, Archamsky, Buddy Harrelson, Jerry Kuzman, um, and to converge on San Francisco airport to meet there, to rent a big van and to drive up to see Tom Seaver and, you know, to spend a day with him on his vineyard, then to have lunch with him and, and what turned out to be the last reunion for that group of, of guys. I mean, that, that brotherhood of the 69 Mets was remarkable. And, and I, you know, I actually had about a half hour alone with Tom um, at the base of his vineyard um, interviewing him for the book and, and talking about Gil Hodges and the influence and impact that Gil had on his life, really a father figure to him. And then talking about Jackie Robinson and Gil's impact on Jackie. And, uh, and, you know, we talked about Gil getting into the hall of fame and, and I really wish Tom were around today um, or would have been around last summer to see Gil, you know, get inducted Um I think that would have meant the world to Tom. And, um, but I think somewhere up above, you know, they're all together and they're celebrating probably with some of Tom's fine uh, Napa Valley wine that, that he used to make. From 69, you then went on and wrote several books about 86. You wrote Kings of Queens. You wrote Two Sides of Glory. And you wrote one about the manager of that 86 Mets ball club, Davey Johnson. Yeah. And don't forget Mookie. Um, I wrote a book with Mookie as well, uh, who was obviously a big part of that 86 Mets team. So what happened was um, I was starting to work on another book project when my agent called and he said, you know, we should meet for lunch. Uh, Mookie Wilson's interested in doing a book. 
And so we met and, um, and I said, my goodness, I'd love to do a book with Mookie, you know, I mean, what a great story. Um, a sharecropper son from South Carolina, you know, becomes the toast of New York and, you know, in, in the 86 series, you know, the ground ball that went through poor Bill Buckner's legs and, you know, he, he was always a hero with the Mets. And he, when he started with the Mets, the Mets were awful. And, and he was really, you know, the one guy that was with them through that entire decade of the eighties. So he was there in the lows, the highs, and then the lows again, you know, at, at, at the end of the decade. And, um, I mean, he was kind of like the Roy White of the Mets, you know, like what Roy White was to the Yankees. Um, and so we did a book together. And so through Mookie, I got to meet, you know, through interviews for his book, you know, Keith Hernandez and Ron Darling and Bobby Ojeda. And then by extension, you know, some other guys too. And, and so I was doing a book signing with Mookie in New Jersey and his wife, Rosa was with us and, and she said, you know, do you have an idea for your next book? And I, I said, well, I'm kicking around some ideas. And she said, you know, you should really do a book with the 86 Mets, you know, a, kind of like a, what, where are they now type thing? And that was a really good idea um, because I had recalled Roger Kahn doing basically the same thing with the boys of summer, the Brooklyn Dodgers of the um, early fifties. And he went back and he uh, visited them in you know the late sixties, early seventies. Uh, and so I did that and that book did really well and it was well, well received. And Davey Johnson who wrote the forward in that book loved the book. And he said, you know, I've been thinking about doing an autobiography for a long time. You're the guy I love uh, Kings of Queens. So I did the book with Davey and then from Davey, you know, well, really through Mukia, I, I got to know Bill Buckner well, because they were somewhat business partners. They did tons of autograph signings together, signing that photo, the ball going through Buckner's legs and Mookie running up the first ba baseline. So I got to know Bill really, really well. And we talked about doing a book for two years together. We did book proposals and, but he just, it was just too painful for him. But what he did submit to was um, for me to do a chapter on him in a book on the 86 Red Sox entitled Two Sides of Glory that I did. And so it was kind of like the like a compliment book to the 86 Mets book, Kings of Queens. Um, it was the other side of the story. And in many ways, it was a more interesting, it, it was an even more interesting read because, you know, you, you have all these books about the victors, but very few about teams that, you know, suffered hard heartache, but that Red Sox team had both sides, you know, with the way that they beat the angels in the ALCS, the way they did, they were down to their last strike, came back one in game five, then took the next two and then they're one strike out away from beating the Mets in a game six in the World Series. And then the Mets came back on them. So um, that was an intriguing team. And and I was living in Boston for much of 86. I was going to college there at the time. 
and doing some some reporting up there. So I knew some of the players. And um, that was a highly emotional book, um, much like Kings of Queens, but even more so. Um, I mean, if if baseball fans don't think that their favorite teams or favorite players don't care, they do. It sticks with them for decades. Um, so my interviews, um, in, in a way, I feel like Diane Sawyer sometimes. They just get you know, really emotional and they open up with me, which is what you want as, as, as an author. And um, so I've been really lucky to get the players to open up to me. Last question for Eric Sherman, author, historian, host of the Eric Sherman Show podcast. You are an annual lecturer at the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. Do you do that on Hall of Fame weekend? And do you, what is your subject? Well, the subjects um, are almost always about my books. In, in fact, they are always about my, my books. The Hall of Fame has um, an author lecture series. And I'm told that I hold the all-time record for most appearances. Um, I've talked about all my books. Um, um, the one time I brought Mookie Wilson with me. Um, so... It's a tremendous thrill, and and Bruce Markison, um, he is the moderator, and he organizes that, and he does a terrific job. And um, so I talk about my books, and I'll actually be up in Cooperstown um, the weekend uh, before the Super Bowl. Um, so that's coming up soon. Um, in fact, it's coming up what is it? Um, a week from Saturday, as a matter of fact. <laughs> so it's, um, it's coming up. Um, so I'll be up there talking about, um, two sides of glory, um, on the 86 Red Sox. And I'm also going to be talking a little bit about my upcoming book, um, on, uh, Fernando Valenzuela. There is nothing I would rather do when it's 20 below for the wind, 20 miles an hour, then talk about or listen to baseball. And I've had the chance to do that with Eric Sherman on the Baseball Lifer podcast. He's the host of the Eric Sherman Show podcast. Check him out wherever you get your podcasts. And Eric, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Well, Don, the pleasure is all mine. I'm I'm a big fan of yours and and, um, you know, really honored to come on to your podcast today. Thank you.